0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life, and I'm so happy and proud to be part of Lit Hub Radio now. Where you can listen to us every Friday, or you can also listen to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest today is Nathaniel Rich, the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History. Welcome, Nathaniel.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: You know, I read this book and I was, I read it literally in one sitting, I was completely entranced by it. Because one of the things I realized is I lived through it myself as an adult, and I didn't know any of it, actually. Have you had that
1: reaction? Yeah, I have. And it's it's remarkable how much, um, I guess I should say I lived through it too, although I was an infant for part of it. Um, but I, it's remarkable how much has been forgotten uh, or was never known, even by some of the people who are leading the the fight now, some of the most... Um, prominent environmental activists to this day, uh, you know, I think of, um, I, I hate to single her out, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the other day, who is probably doing more for pushing legislation on the issue than anybody else, and more than anyone has in, in many years, uh, she gave this passionate speech on the floor of the House Um Saying that you know there will be blood on our hands if we don't act, and and all of the rest, and it was it was wonderful. And then at the end, she said, "The government has known about this since 1989," <laughs> and I felt if even if even she doesn't understand um, the history, the prehistory. Of well, this. in
2: reading this, I also realized that there was another initiative which had New Deal in it as well. It wasn't just. This was not the first Green New Deal, right? That was an initiative. I no,
1: believe. yeah, and Thomas Friedman popularized the term what a decade ago. Yeah, um,
2: but I think we're getting ahead of yes, ourselves indeed. because there are people who are listening <laughs> Don't know we're who have not about. read the yeah, book. Exactly. And the way I describe this to anyone who asks me is, you know, there have been so many books on 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 climate change and global warming, particularly for those of us in Miami, which talk about what's going to happen in worst-case scenario. Um, What this book does is it gives you the history of the whole notion of climate change. It tells us how we have squandered opportunities, and it leaves us with an incredible question as to what opportunities are ahead of us. So I just want to start with, we talked about the year 1989, But really, the year I want to ask you about is 1979. Tell me why that was such a pivotal
1: year. By 1979, you have scientific consensus on the fundamental science of climate change. Uh, That's not to say that we discovered climate change in 1979. In fact, the basic science that, you know, as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels, the world will get warmer. Um, that correlation and understanding that that was happening dates back to the 19th century. By 1979, however, um, you have a series of high-level reports, uh, both within the government and uh, the scientific establishment, as well as in the oil and gas uh, industry, and understood that when CO2 levels uh, double beyond historic averages, that warming uh, will increase by an average of three degrees Celsius. And that is the... Rather prosaic finding that is essentially uh, dates the uh, consensus on what's happening and how bad it's going to be.
2: So the idea is there was consensus
1: by 1979, and pretty it, much. Yeah, and that finding hasn't been um, changed. Yeah, since then, and in fact, there's a, 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 a in um, Stanford. There's this this uh, great climate scientist Ken Caldera, who told me that at the beginning of every semester in graduate school. Uh, he begins with a question to his students, can you name any any fundamental uh, developments in climate science since 1979? And it's a trick question. There hasn't been any. There's just further specificity, precision, right. and data and all of that.
2: Well, you also talk, I, I guess, before there was consensus, people were still talking about climate issues back, you know, 50 years even before then, right?
1: Yeah. The, I think the first time you have... Concern. So the the awareness that the world will get warmer dates back to the 19th century. Uh, The first time people are worried that the world might get warmer goes back to the 50s, and um, especially to a major paper um, from Roger Revelle, who's a very high-level geophysicist, advisor to uh, John F. Kennedy uh, in his administration. And he publishes a study uh, saying that this might be really destabilizing. Uh, It's not just that we'll be a little warmer that this will be destabilizing to just about every aspect of society and he starts talking to um, You know Life magazine Time magazine New York Times reports on it and It's covered nationally uh, by 1957 and that's when they start measuring Very precisely the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, on a continuous basis
2: so by 1979 there is consensus and In any rational world, when there is that kind of consensus, there would be action taken. And I think what you have done in these 200-some-odd pages is you have led us on this road where we keep hitting obstacles as to, I mean, like, we're almost there, there's almost a possibility of doing something, and usually the obstacle is political in some particular way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it follows uh, the stories of a couple of people who are really responsible for pushing the issue um, over the course of this decade that I write about, 79 to 89. And uh, the first is, is Rafe Pomerantz. He's an activist and a political lobbyist. Um, who is not a scientist. Who is not a say. scientist. He's a historian by, by training. Right. Um, and, it's, and he discovers the issue sitting in his office in Capitol Hill in 1979, Uh, reading an obscure government report and what I love about his story from at least from a writing standpoint is he goes through the same kind of emotional and intellectual response that I think we all go through when we confront the issue the scale of it Uh, which is to say the first thing he says is uh, my god (laughs) Uh, this can't be true because surely if it was true someone would have done something about it Uh, then he realizes that no, nobody's done anything about it. So his next instinct is to tell everybody. And that's the beginning of the book. He goes around Capitol Hill telling every um, high level official he he can, uh, going up to the president's own science advisor. Um, And he thinks that will be enough, that surely smart people uh, will act prudently once they know that, as you said, once they understand the problem and that doesn't work. and, and, over the course of the next 10 years you're you're right there are these a number of setbacks um some of them uh political but a lot others just um sort of questions of human indecision and confidence failure to really reckon with the scope of the problem and and all the time rafe and and his allies are are pushing and pushing and um Yes, there's some doubt about whether it will work by the end of the decade. Finally, it seems that they're on the precipice of a of a global solution
2: and And <laughs> as part of that journey, he hooks up with scientists like George McDonald, for yeah. instance. Yeah, talk about George McDonald a little bit. and talk about the Jasons, which yeah, is so the
1: the Jasons are this elite group of scientists um that operated mostly in secret. Uh, and in fact, their whole existence was secret uh, until the publication of the Pentagon Papers. They had formed around the time of the Manhattan Project. They're top scientists convened by the U.S. government and usually the intelligence agencies to solve problems of, of major national security interest. So it tended to be about questions of you know, b- nuclear bombs and, and all kinds of espionage and... By the end of the 70s, uh, Gordon McDonald, who's one of the the leading um, members of the Jasons, starts to become very concerned about global warming. It's an issue that he's followed back since the, the 60s. Um, but by the late 70s, he sees that we're on this this pathway towards a real uh, real disaster. And um, so he links up. Th- uh, so basically, Rafe Pomerantz. Uh, discovers that, that Gordon MacDonald is, is taking this issue to the press. He reads an interview with him and they join up and there is this kind of odd couple of this like... draft dodging um, uh, conscientious objector Vietnam and essentially the chief scientist to the CIA. Um, so you have this funny meeting of this, uh, the core of the military industrial complex and, and this uh, Vietnam draft dodger and they and they are united in their concern about the issue and so they go around together and warning people and um you know it's one of uh, rafe's great qualities is that he uh, as passionate as he was about and is about the issue um, he has a sort of perfect Um, sort of marketer savvy of who is the best person to deliver the message. And so he, he, he attaches himself to a couple of folks, different people on the way and begins with Gordon McDonald, who could not be more, you know, authoritative. Uh, And then he further goes to meet up with James Hansen, a NASA scientist who then becomes the face of the, of the issue.
2: Yeah. And, and, in 1979 we were still in the Carter um administration and Carter was sympathetic to a lot of this right he even put solar panels on the white house
1: Carter is a is a is a fascinating figure in this because he he understands right away the nature of the problem and uh he gets a memo um on global warming as, almost as soon as he enters office in 1977 um it's not then uh, seen as a priority, but he understands it. And he begins um, talking about uh, the issue uh, in a way that that both is sort of intellectually and, and really morally more sophisticated than just about any of his successors to this day. He understands that it's a, a global crisis and that to solve a global crisis, um, you need to you know not only have partnership with other countries, but there has to be a clear uh, moral understanding of the matter that you can't um, A global crisis and I should say a long-term crisis that it, it requires more than just piecemeal kind of work and so his speeches from this period uh, in the during his term are read very um, they're not at all dated they read very vividly uh, and and he and he grasps the core of the issue on the other hand um, we're still in this period where. The, the government is traumatized by the oil crises of the 1970s
2: i and, remember that well yeah. yeah and
1: he's developing this sort of all hands on deck energy policy right. and that includes um a renewed dedication to coal extraction um coal seen as much safer than as well
2: coal. as synthetic fuels
1: right? yeah and so synthetic fuels is essentially um essentially turning coal into gasoline the idea being that we don't need to have dependence on on Saudi oil if we can turn coal into gasoline and it's a technology that uh, was never ended up not being economical and was was dropped about five or six years later by the Reagan administration but it was it was uh, that was his you know he had solar panel and he had extreme uh, dependence on coal and and Gordon McDonald was among the first to say this you can't do both of these things either we're going to care about environmental issues he was this great and carter was this great environmental president or we're going to do all all hands on deck uh energy but you can't do both and in fact i think the first time global warming uh is discussed in by the senate is in is in the hearing on synthetic fuels in 1979 Mm -hmm. when gordon mcdonald testifies and says this is a disaster
2: and and also Paralleling that same period, you also had, if I'm not mistaken of the dates, some of the gigantic oil companies were also exploring global warming and recognizing it at the time.
1: Yeah, the, the story of the industry is much like that of the government. They, they understand uh, that this is emerging as a real problem, and you know, they've been tracking the issue for decades as well. Basically, every time you see a government report in those years, you see similar reports from industry. Um, there are reports going back to the 50s that have been unearthed um, at Humble Oil, for instance, the predecessor of Exxon uh, in the mid-50s, not even testing whether you know climate change was real or that it was happening, but trying to determine exactly how much culpability the fossil fuel industry had and right. in increasing the CO2 load in the atmosphere. So they understand it perfectly, and by the end of the 70s, um, yes, Exxon starts its own carbon dioxide program. The American Petroleum Institute starts its own carbon dioxide study group. Yeah, they were funding some of the, the great scientists. Some of the great that scientists appeared. of the time, yeah. And so they, were, they wanted to know what was happening and be prepared for, for what it might mean.
2: And then like what happened in so much of the world, things change with the election of ronald reagan right
1: yeah reagan comes in uh and it's this all-out uh blitzkrieg on any form of regulation basically and although reagan is clearly not checked into the carbon dioxide issue um nevertheless he they cut funding across the board and it has a huge effect on not just you know research and development and, and all of these studies but um also on uh the ability of people like Rafe pomerantz to continue to work on the issue because they they have to defend the gains they've made during the carter administration right. on clean air and clean they were trying water, to close down the epa right? down the epa talking about closing down department of energy right. um i mean honestly reading reading newspapers from 1980 80, 81 um it's the same kind of thing you see when Trump comes in and, you know, uh, has Pruitt and, and all the others come in. It's, he bas- Reagan basically chooses the industry hacks most hostile to the, the cabinet, the agencies that they're meant to to lead. And so Pomerantz and all the others um, have to launch this sort of rearguard action to just save what's been gained over the last, not even just the Carter administration, but going back to gains in environmental policies since Teddy Roosevelt.
2: I, I skipped over something which I know was uh, extremely important, and that's the Carney report. And that was the report that kind of brought everything together.
1: Yeah, so the 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 after Gordon McDonald and, and Pomerance um have all these meetings, the Carter administration, which is being pulled sort of in two ways by his environmentalism and his um synthetic fuels initiative, often with the same people running both of those programs, um Responds by doing the classic, you know, government response to a problem, which is right. they commission reports and studies, and and the big one is the Charney report, which um, is held the the same week as Gordon McDonald testifies on the synthetic fuels initiative, and that report is uh, conclude basically backs up the report from the Jasons and many others, that it, and it's that's the gold standard that it's. It's a problem, and that warming will increase by. Three and days. that's what everybody referred to, and that's and there was no there was no question about it. That was it. That's that's when you know, a lot of I I found you know people are very uh, sometimes are ask you know well how do you mean me a novelist write a, a, you know such a, a piece about science and and um and all of the, and technology and all of that and I say well. Really, of course, I have to convey the science clearly in the piece, but really the scientific story ends before the, the, my, the narrative begins. Yes. Um, so it's actually pretty convenient. I mean, right. Gordon right. MacDonald and his meetings gives a kind of history it's of like the It's like science. one of those
2: mysteries where you know who killed yeah. <laughs> whomever, but you're having to find out why. Well, exactly. Someone,
1: <laughs> someone uh, asked me if I had seen the movie DOA film noir, which is one of actually one of my favorite movies, very obscure film noir. And, <clears throat> and it, it begins with, um, yeah, the lead, the lead figure, a sort of chubby guy stumbles into a, a detective's office in LA, Los Angeles, uh, on a rainy night. And he says, I'd like to report a murder. I said, well, who's been murdered? He said me, <laughs> and he's been poisoned. It's a slow acting poison. And then the movie, is is he tries to find his killer before it's too late and essentially i thought my interlocutor made the point that that's basically the story of losing earth and in some ways it's true we know you know there's been a there's been a crime there's been a a a killing well uh, and during
2: the reagan years the 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 thing that all of a sudden shook that carney report if i'm not mistaken was the changing climate report right?
1: Yeah. So you have after after the, those consensus um, reports, you have this incredibly comprehensive um, effort by the National Academy of Sciences, which is also begun by the Carter administration, and the idea there is not to not only study the science, but to study the socioeconomic impacts, the foreign policy impacts. Um, basically every aspect of climate change that you can think of and the military impacts and that report um is worked on by about a hundred of the leading experts in the in the country and the reagan administration uses that process as their excuse every time there's any questions about you know what are you doing about carbon dioxide they say well let's wait till the changing climate report is published and then we'll know what to do and it's not um published until 1983 and the publication and this is a really strange sort of pivotal moment in the history it's essentially the end of the first part uh confirms every uh every scenario that's been you know seen by the other reports confirms the science and then and yet the conclusion reached is essentially let's not worry about it for now uh, and why they reached that conclusion, despite the science, and even people like Roger Revelle who are on the committee supported that conclusion um, is it is is hard to figure out. But I think my my basic diagnosis is that it comes down to the leading factors that the people who were who were writing the report or at least writing the conclusion, um were all members of this older generation of of American scientists that were then. Extraordinarily powerful and influential within the government, people who came of age during you know the Manhattan Project and and in, and were you know were born in the Dust Bowl and were just um, very very confident in um, America's ability to solve any problem that came its way, and and so there's a kind of uh, faith in American ingenuity and power uh, and technology that will save the day, that if we've, you know, the idea being if we've solved um, the Dust Bowl, if we solved, if, if we won World War II and we're going to win the Cold War, we've invented the aerospace industry and the computer industry, surely this carbon dioxide thing uh, is not beyond our powers. And
2: we ought to wait until it becomes more profound. Was there sense?
1: Yeah, or wait where? until, or, or, the, or, think, or the idea was like, well, when we invent more technology will be able to figure this out or um surely at the at the rate we're going um in a few more decades this this will seem very manageable in terms of our technological innovation uh and then you have the younger generation of people like Rafe pomerantz who have no such faith in uh american ingenuity and, and prudence and so there's a huge intergenerational split within the people who are working on on that report yeah and and that's i think the first um version of an intergenerational split that you see to this day and and will only become exacerbated and even
2: and even the oil companies started backing off
1: everyone started backing off at that point it's the death knell for the issue because if the u.s government says we don't care about it then yeah the oil and gas industry ends its efforts and for that matter um, nobody in the environmental activist community. And we takes started it up.
2: getting the meme started being that there may not be even an issue
1: at that point, yeah. so the, basically, there's a full blackout on the issue for a few years. And Rafe Pomerance uh, is out of a job. James Hansen, the NASA scientist, uh, loses his carbon dioxide research funding. And you don't see a revival of interest until you get to this connected right. crisis of the ozone layer. The,
2: yeah, right. The ozone layer, because it was so identifiable, the ozone layer started um, not radicalizing, but it started bringing the whole idea of global warming into people's consciousness. Talk yeah, about and you that have, a little bit.
1: Yeah, you have this <laughs> Ray Pomerantz who, um, you know, we talked about his sort of marketing savvy uh, he sees the success of this other issue, which is, of course, related, because the same chemicals that cause the depletion of, of ozone over the Antarctic also are greenhouse gases. But the, the country gets worked up into this panic about this, really based on this phrase, there's a hole in the ozone layer, which is a, a literary metaphor, basically. Well, you talk,
2: about, you talk about someone created this amazing video yeah it's an animation that was an animation that scared the hell out of
1: people yeah because there's no you know oh there's already a very small concentration of ozone in the atmosphere and it was getting lower it was a problem for certain but it was only when uh yes a NASA scientist uh played a video before Congress and uh colorized it to show the varying levels of, of ozone concentration and colored uh and when it got to the lower levels it looked darker so it looked like a hole, um, even if there was not an actual hole. But that image was enough to frighten people.
2: Oh, I remember when people had to... They were putting on extra sunscreen
1: yeah. and they weren't going out without a hat. Thought, everyone thought they were going to go blind. <clears throat> um, right. There was one activist who said it's like AIDS from the sky, right. which the New York Times wouldn't let me <laughs> use in the original article, but I've, it's in the book, probably in bad taste. But um, that's the level of, of but hysteria. But that led,
2: that led to some hope because it led... To the very first treaty that was ever done on any of
1: this stuff, right? It, it created a solution for the first time for for global warming, uh, a global binding treaty to reduce emissions. In this case, of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons. Um, but as soon as that process began, and it was under the auspices of the United Nations. Um, the global warming crowd had an answer for what are we going to do about it there was a very specific answer and there was a process Uh, and and sure enough within a year they started up this exact process within the un uh to to negotiate the same kind of of treaty and even um the reagan administration the the head of the epa lee thomas says after signing the ozone um the montreal protocol uh for ozone layer uh he says, well we're gonna next time we do this it'll be for global warming.
2: Yeah. No, and, and that and so this jockeying back and forth, it nothing really happened with global warming. I mean there was there were there were uh, gatherings and I remember at one point you said uh uh it was it rafe or somebody was standing outside of the final um they were they were trying to forge the final document of one of these global warming uh, confabs. And somebody from another country came out and said, and then Rafe or somebody
1: said, what's going on? And they said, well, your country is fucking it all up. Yeah, that's... So, So yeah, from from the birth of this international process, um, you have a couple of years of, of sort of triumphant success. As the process continues, you have um George h. w. Bush running on global warming as an issue saying that we're gonna solve it uh when we're in the White House, but then you had sununu as well but then you have yes this sort of dark eminence of, of john sununu <laughs> who's who's Bush's chief of staff um who he bring who brings into the White House with him who is uh a Ph.D. in engineering, uh, despite serving as two terms as as a Republican governor of New Hampshire, still considers himself as a great scientist. And he becomes very skeptical of the science. And he's a, essentially patient zero of climate denialism. He's he's really the first person to say not just that there's uncertainty in the margins, but that the whole science is uncertain. And furthermore, he has some conspiratorial theories about the politics of it. And so you advance to the first high-level diplomatic meetings uh, for this treaty in in Noordwijk in the Netherlands, and Sununu at the last minute, um, through basically sheer political power within that administration, since he was the most powerful person after the president, and the president was fairly checked out of the issue by this point, Uh, Sununu forces the U.S. delegation to withdraw from any kind of commitment that's binding, or any effort to reduce emissions by a certain amount, um, and that you know it goes relatively uncommented upon at the time. But in retrospect, that's the closest we got, and um, and then you have this slow, not slow, and then not very slow descent into um, denialism and propaganda and all the rest.
2: Yeah, and and we were. Nothing was changing, right? I mean, there were incremental changes. People made carbon emissions from car laws, and and that sort of thing was happening. But you say something that is astonishing when I thought about it, and um, that since nineteen eighty nine to now, we have um, we have expelled into the environment as much carbon di- dioxide. Because in all the years leading up to it, yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah, and it's
1: astonishing also when you look back at some of the comments from 1989, people like Rafe Pomerantz saying, you know, I'm worried that if we don't act now, you know, we can't wait till 1990. We can't wait till 1991. And then to consider the behemoth uh, that was coming since then, and I think more discouraging than just the continued emissions and all of that is the fact that the public conversation uh, and the politics— and certainly the policy, has essentially frozen since that period. And it became an issue of
2: economics. People talked about it in those terms. Is it worth doing? And you have some really, I'm going to throw some quotes back at you, which I found to be um, really brilliantly said. Economics at the time didn't value the future. And the question is, how much do we really value the future?
1: It still doesn't, yeah, the the discount. Um, rate. Yeah. And, and this was a problem that was understood back in the 1970s by people like William Nordhaus, who just won the Nobel Prize. Um, the economists who are studying climate change understood that because our system doesn't um, assign very much or, or no value to future to the future, uh, a threat that's distant, even if it's existential, um, is worth nothing. And uh, to us today, and so how do we address this economically? And Nordhaus's plan was to price carbon, uh, essentially a carbon tax, and which Republicans were in favor of. Yeah, it, it was, was a conservative were, um, right. idea. In fact, you know that he was the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, had him giving talks to their economic council about this, and even American Petroleum Institute I found were circulating his papers. So it's not a radical no. idea. Essentially, he's saying that it's not a problem with the economics, it's that um, we are failing to price this valuable <clears throat> resource, um, carbon, uh, we're, we're pretending as if it's free, but of course it's not, and so it's, it's about, so he calculated what should be the appropriate market price. And so that was his solution, but you see similar problems um with you know it's why they call it the wicked problem it's you know whether you view it from uh in political science you know if you look at it in our own democracy where the longest uh electoral term is six years um whether you look at it from a a, as a question of human psychology you know how much do we really value the future think about the future um you you again and again um, sort of bump into our our struggle our failures to uh really account for distant threats well be, because we
2: make certain assumptions and you point out that economics and politics often
1: assume a stable environment yeah right? and that that was that was one roger Ravel's great insight in the 50s was that every aspect of our society is based on that assumption where we put our cities where we I mean, we're in Miami right now, you know, where, where we grow food, where we get our water from, um, where our borders are on and on all of it, how we do our trade, all of it is, is based on an idea that the, the stability that we've had to this point will remain. But if it's not going to remain, then we're in, you know, it'd be as if we built our cities. Uh, in the middle of the Sahara or in the South Pole it starts to become less logical and then you have to Speaking speaking
2: of Miami um, I thought that I was going to get I've I've read a lot of books on climate change and Miami sometimes leads the book often or is the book or is the the central part of it and I thought I would get through your book without having Miami mentioned but I didn't (laughs) and it was in a fascinating reference and I had no idea. I might have seen it when I was in elementary school, but talk about the Unchained Goddess by uh, by Frank Capra. It's a yeah. movie that he
1: did to let people know about climate change. Well, it was this, it was it was for this um, probably the most one of the most successful uh, children's programming shows on network television uh, in American history, and it aired. Um, it was part of a series of films. It aired in 1957 or 8 and it included a section about global warming and this is right after right. roger Ravel's big you know paper and his um the press he gave and and you can watch it on youtube it's really quite yeah, I'm, I'm shocking do that. yeah in fact the person who told me about it i was amazed i hadn't encountered this previously um was peter schwartz who's this great futurist who in the early 80s worked for shell in their long-term scenario planning division and he said that he found he learned about climate change when he was in uh, elementary school, I think in New Jersey, and he saw this movie on Sunday night. It's later aired in science classes. And they talk about Miami being and underwater. They talk about, and they There's big an animation. Buildings. Right. Yeah, there's an animation about where the science characters explain <coughs> global warming and, and someone says, Is that gonna be bad? And he says, Yes. And and there's this animation of people in a glass bottomed boat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> floating over a submerged Miami um, in this sort of childlike animation but the but the, the voiceover is saying this is going to be a catastrophe
2: and if we don't do something it yeah. might be very right, right. Actually, right which is really ironic right. um, the other thing you bring up you have a wonderful last chapter which I really found to be it's basically your feelings in essence about where we are now and what possibilities we have. Um, And you also talk about the underpinnings of uh, really probably what drew you to this. I know it's what draws so many to this whole issue of climate change. Um, The fact that there can be no civil society without a stable climate. We know that civilizations have collapsed when there's been terrible climate change. Also, when there's also been uh, the disparity between rich and poor. Those two factors tend to be too, uh, it's like the perfect storm when that happens. And we're moving a little bit toward that ourselves right now. But you are hopeful. Uh, talk about the hope that you have. And I know where it is it's on page 201. <laughs> and you, you you have this wonderful piece of hope
1: that well, you talk about. I, I mean, I think my the lesson I've, the major lesson I've learned from this history is the uh the limits to essentially the appeal to reason uh which is the argument that's made by Rafe Pomerantz and jim hansen and others starting in 1979 which is to say you know we know the science we need to act it's crazy not to act and you've heard that argument basically ever since you hear it from al gore Uh, And it only has been in the last six months or so that there's been a different argument, which is the argument that's led by people like Ocasio-Cortez, people like the Sunrise Movement, um, and the young activists supporting the Green New Deal, uh, which is an argument that says uh, not only is it stupid not to act, but it's wrong not to act. But by our failure to act um, is betraying the very values that we claim as the basis for our our society our democracy and and our civilization and uh so when they say things like you know to older politicians you're stealing our future away from us you're killing us um you are robbing us from a chance of of prosperity and liberty they're making a moral claim and i think that's a a, not only is it a, a more profound argument and i think a more emotional argument Uh, But it also is a more honest argument. It's no longer this thing about, I'm worried for my grandchildren. They're saying, we're worried for us. And I think there's a tremendous amount of um, moral authority that they have by being young people.
2: And if we can capture that moral authority and move it into our political system, we can do something that William Nordhaus, when he won the Nobel Prize, says, and you quote him in your book, the problem is political rather than one of economics or feasibility. We can trust the technology and the economics. It's harder to trust human behavior.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I and I, I think when we have had major sea changes in public opinion on major social issues in our, in our culture, yeah. uh, they tend to be accompanied by an appeal to a higher decency and to a moral claim. And I think that's only just begun to happen with climate change in this country. And so I don't know whether that's enough to carry the day, but it does seem to me, to be a profound uh, transformation of the the public conversation, and I think a necessary one. I think until we can speak honestly about it, and frankly, in moral terms about the problem, uh, then I don't think we, we have the chance to succeed. But I think what you're seeing now is, is the beginning of, of one.
2: So there is a chance that we can keep it at about Two degrees Celsius, or yeah, it's below. Te-
1: it's it's possible. It's technologically possible. Is yeah, there and there are all kinds of plans out there. And uh, yeah, as Nordhaus said, it's it's political will. It comes down to a political question. So
2: we may not have a Mad Max future ahead of us. <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> no, but it's um, y- you know, we have a huge range of outcomes ahead of us, and and the question is, what do we want to do about it? Well, and your your book is
2: uh, a remarkable addition to this whole discussion. And just the fact that we've been raising these questions in our talk right now, I think, is something which is going to resonate all across the country, if not the world. But I don't want to leave out a couple of things about you. You're, you're, you really are uh, multi-talented. Not only are you a writer of, of, of nonfiction. In fact, two weeks ago, I think you were the whole New York Times magazine was... Pretty much you, if well, I, I'm not mistaken. This piece
1: was originally the entire magazine. Losing Earth right. started out, and then a couple of weeks ago, we had, there's another climate issue that I wrote the introduction for. That you for. wrote for.
2: Yeah. But you've also been a novelist. So you, and, But not only that, but you, you, you pointed to it a little bit when you mentioned that on arrival, you also your very first book was on san francisco noir, right
1: <laughs> yes in fact D- doa is in that that book i mean i i think
2: which i haven't seen which i'm gonna see great. because it,
1: of it when i wrote that book you couldn't find it but it's now available i think on uh, you know dvd or streaming or something but i think they're all um you know that i think the subject matter uh, that i write about changes quite a lot but uh it's all they're all stories about w- what i think well, maybe with the exception of, of film noir, but, you know, the bigger, biggest issues well, the, of our, of our
2: well, time. Well, Carolyn C. says of the mayor's tongue uh, in the Washington Post that it says, playful, highly intellectual novel about serious subjects, the failure of language, for one, and how we cope with that failure in order to keep ourselves sane. And about, uh, uh, about odds against tomorrow, Kathleen Schein wrote in the New York Review of Books, let's just say right away, Recognize how prescient this charming, terrifying comic novel of apocalyptic manners is. Rich is a gifted caricaturist and a gifted apocalyptist. His descriptions of the vagaries of both nature and human nature are stark fresh and convincing, full of surprise and recognition as both good comedy and good terror must be. And I think in reading this book, I think that review might even be able to to fit with uh losing earth a recent history uh good comedy and good terror is found all throughout this book
1: yeah i i see it very much as a non-fiction version in some ways of odds against tomorrow which um is about fear of the future um i think uh mayor's tongue is certainly about language and and failure the challenges we have just communicating with one another and and King Zeno, my last novel, is about uh, how we're haunted by the past, lar- you know, largely. And I think, yes, all of those themes are present in Losing Earth as well.
2: And and you're now living in Los Angeles. Uh, New I mean, New Orleans. New Orleans. You, left, you left New York.
1: Yeah, I've been in New Orleans for about nine years and love it. And, um, yeah, it's not lost on me that it's uh, maybe after Miami, the city most threatened by uh, sea level rise. But I think it in the same way as I I think you must have in Miami, it's a place that um, it's already living in this future in so many ways, culturally, we're already aware. And of course the city has a long history of being aware of imminent threats um, from from nature, but it's for a city that's so identified with the past, I feel like it's also uh, a city of the future in the sense that everyone who lives there has to come face to face with these existential threats and, and existential questions. And I think that leads to um, a very specific kind of, it's part of the excitement of being there in a lot of ways. Um, and it lead, I think it also leads to a more honest reckoning with where we are and where we're going. And, and I think in the future, more parts of the country will have more. Are to you have working on reckoning. something
2: now? Are you working on a, a, a new project?
1: Yeah, I have um, another uh, nonfiction uh, book that's on the way that's uh, on environmental themes and then a, a novel as well.
2: Great. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. I'm really excited about tonight. Tonight uh, Nathaniel's going to be here with Rafe. So yeah. that should be really exciting. It's,
1: it's, it's an experience I haven't had with my novels where your main character is sitting <laughs> next just to walks you on out. stage, yeah, ready to <laughs> <laughs> disagree with you on anything. Because he's, he's working with a
2: Florida organization. He is. Now. He
1: has this Rethink Florida um, and he remains this very um, impressive activist and he has a whole um, political strategy based around Florida and, and using Florida and and climate change uh, as as a as a linchpin to, to turn in the entire public um, debate over the issue. Boy, let's hope. <laughs> Nathaniel Rich,
2: the book is Losing Earth, A Recent History. It's been really, really a pleasure to
1: have you on The Literary Life. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Thanks.